Hello, and welcome to Bostonian Rap. My name is Rachel Meiselman. You are listening to me on WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston. This is, of course, Boston's community radio station. So as always, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, Before we jump right on in, uh, I'm going to jump to... Before I jump right in, I'm going to jump to a disclaimer, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll start uh, just diving right on in to tonight's topics. The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Hello, and welcome back to Bostonian Rap. Again, my name is Rachel Meiselman. You are listening to me on WBCA LP 102.9 FM Boston. So as I said, let's just drive right on in as, you know, as promised. Let's just get down to it. So, you know, I've been saying that Boston has become accessible because it really has. I've been talking about about the currency of Boston. And so when I'm talking about the currency, I'm talking about the economy. I'm I'm talking about what buoys up other sectors in the city. I'm talking about what allows Boston to have the reputation that it does and to be able to make the boasts that it does. So the currency here in Boston, it's education. And as I have frequently said, we, oh, I I shouldn't say we, because I've had no part in it, but I would say that the politicians, the political class, has completely devalued our currency, has completely made a joke of the educational system in this city. And it's sad. I mean, there's this idea, or at least it seems to be, that there's just so much to do. There's so much to fix. And so people have allowed the decision makers to get away with that ridiculous assertion they have allowed them to possess this kind of failure mentality. And over time, the existing problems have grown, of course, and they've given rise to new ones. But still, Boston Public Schools isn't so big, especially with students now opting to go elsewhere and people leaving the city, It's not so big that the issues, even the more significant ones, that they can't be addressed. And so I'm tremendously frustrated at this point because 
we just have a lot of people who are responsible, as I said, for making decisions. And quite honestly, they have no business being in the roles or holding the positions that they do. Very, very frustrating. Boston's become a city, some would argue it's long been this way. I, I guess, yes, I, I, I would agree with that. But it's, it's, it's long been, why don't I phrase it like that? It's long been a city where it's not what you know. It's not even who you know. It's who knows you. And so I might have shared this before. So let me explain exactly what that means for people who might not have heard me use that phrase before, that sentence. It means that the people who are the gatekeepers have to approve of you so they can know you, but they have to know you. In other words, they have to be comfortable with you not upstaging them. They have to be comfortable with you being around them and not asking too many questions. So we have people who are the gatekeepers. I'm going to use that term again, decision makers, who are more interested in building a culture than they are an efficient and strong workforce or environment or city, right? It's all down to, are you going to say yes? Are you going to go along with what is handed down? Are you going to keep your mouth shut? And that, all of that, that mentality has nothing to do with what Boston is. Boston is the home of the revolution, right? It's the home of the American Revolution. And it's very much, and I consider it, and I don't mean this to be, I don't mean to be disrespectful toward Philadelphia because Philadelphia is, is, is a phenomenal city. It's a phenomenal place. And I'm, and I'm thinking of other cities that have played a significant role in the early days of this great nation. The, uh, and, 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 of course, um, the, the period, the critical period leading up to the birth of this nation. But really, I, and I think I can say this without bias, Boston is the cradle of American history. And it's about people standing up and questioning what is going on. And it's about speaking out on an issue, even if it's not popular to do so. And if you you want to debate me, that's fine. But I'm going to then point you to the different points in, America, in Boston's history, excuse me, where 
it has been on the front lines of critical key issues. And Bostonians, I think, have historically spoken up, even if it's at a cost to themselves and the trappings that they might possess or might have possessed that made their existence comfortable. That's, for me, as a girl who grew up in Boston, as someone who considers Boston really the city that shaped and molded her, that's what I think of when I think of Boston. And so when I look around me, I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. You know, again, our currency is education, and so we should have wonderful schools. You know, an ongoing question has been, well, why can't our children enjoy these world-class universities that are in and just outside the city? Why? Now, please understand me. I, I don't want someone to walk away from this program and think that what I'm suggesting are places be set aside. Of course not. And and it's just kind of a shame. It's kind of silly that I have to watch what I say and, and, and qualify a lot of what I say. But you have people, in addition to only being willing to listen to certain stances on the issues, you also have people, and sometimes it's the same people, uh, who, if they do decide to listen at certain points, it's with the intent to attack. It's with the intent to malign. And so they'll take something that you said and then respond to you as if you've said something different, so, such as the climate right now in Boston. So it's it's really it's really frustrating. It's not just in Boston, though. I think it's throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But to 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 witness it here in Boston that that's tough. <laughs> that's really 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 tough uh, for me at least. So I want to see these schools improve. You know, you don't think that our children want to have pride and where they go to school? Of course they do. Of course they do. You know, when it comes to where one lives, where one goes to school, where one works, these Things, these, you know, place of residence, schools, jobs, these things are part of our identity. And there's certain things, notwithstanding differences in skin color, ethnic background, faith, uh, nationality, country of origin, so on and so forth. Any kind of 
of of subgroup that we can think of or or factor or element that puts us in one group or another. Take any, or I could just say label, take any label. And I'm going to tell you that there are certain things that are universal. And I saw that. I saw that certain things were universal. I spent almost 10 years as a foreigner. So I haven't spent the entirety of my life in Boston. I've lived in different places at different points in my life. And at one point, I was a foreigner. And in the two countries, in other countries which I resided, I noticed that there were things that were quite different from the United States, uh, from things that I had witnessed, had experienced, uh, things that even that I believed in. It was, it was very much a period in my life where I think I learned a tremendous amount about myself, about the United States, about the world. But I also learned a lot about people and human nature. And so, again, notwithstanding all the subgroups that exist, all the different demographics that exist, subgroups within the human race, that is, um, I'm going to say that there are certain things that, yes, they most definitely are universal. And one of those things a sense of pride. People want to have a pride in those three things that I enumerated. I remember being a judge. There is a wonderful group, and I'll talk more about it at another point in time and, and give it really uh, the attention that it richly deserves, but I served with this group as a volunteer judge. And the students, these were high school students in this particular uh, tournament, and they were given debate topics, and they had to prepare both sides, and it was with the understanding that, well, they were probably, well, they were definitely going to get, obviously, one perspective, but there was a chance that maybe they could find themselves on different sides of the same topic, right? So I participated in this tournament, and first of all, I have to say it was tremendously uh, gratifying, and I left so unbelievably impressed with our youth. But I was also struck one of the students, I, I talked to him in between, you know, in between debates, and he said, oh, I go to this school. I, I had actually asked him, and he said, oh, I, I go to this school. And I said, oh, okay. And he's like, oh, well, you must have heard about it. And the way he said it, he conveyed a sense of, I don't want to go as far as to say shame, but there was a little bit of embarrassment because the school had been making news, had been making headlines for different instances of violence that had transpired within its walls. And I just, I let him know that the school was a good one. 
that there were very hardworking educators there and that there were wonderful, intellectually dynamic students such as themselves that I know are going to be very successful in life. That's what I said. And I hope that the student heard it. I think he did. I do. I think he got the message. I think that he he walked away and he took that with him. But again, it struck me because our students, they want to be able to go into schools. They want their schools to be safe. They want their surroundings to be attractive. They want to be able to learn. They want people to think that their schools are good schools because then that means that they're smart because they're there. Why can't we get this done? What's the problem? What is the problem that year after year we shuffle the deck There's maybe a flurry of activity, and then nothing, right? Except the exacerbation of the existing problems and the ongoing emergence of new problems. (laughs) I don't get it. What's interesting to me, as an alumna of Boston Latin School, one of the three exam schools, it's, it's, it's been interesting to me to watch how all these activists and some educators, sadly, and and, and members of the political class were able to get together and really deal a serious blow to the meritocratic ideal. It's amazing to me how they were able And I think in a relatively short time, I mean, it's been a steady march, but still the last few years, it just seemed to happen very quickly where I won't go as far to say that the exam schools have been dismantled, but I think the exam schools are in trouble. They're in trouble. You have students who are in these schools And they can't keep up with the work. And so the rigor is relaxed. So these students are able to stay because if these students who never should have been there in the first place have to leave, well, then that will be a failure. That will be a lot. That will be something that all these little activists and educators and politicians, that will be like an L that they have to add to their columns, and they want this to be a win. And it's amazing to me how quickly they could get together and really put into policies, push policies forward that have greatly adversely impacted the exam schools, including, again, my alma mater. 
And I'm just curious as to why the same energy can't be used to improve the whole of the Boston public schools so that our students at every level of their education, they have a galaxy, they have a constellation of schools from which they can select. I just don't get it. I don't understand. Then you have housing. All these problems that we have, and and to be somewhat fair, uh, or to play devil's advocate, urban environments, urban spaces, they're all experiencing more or less the same issues. But my issue, and it's not that I don't care about what's happening elsewhere, I do. But what we're seeing in Boston, we were sheltered from a lot of these issues for a long time. But for whatever reason, well, I I can think of a few reasons, but let's just say that many Bostonians decided to not defend the legacy of the city. You know, I laugh when people say, freedom is not free. Or they'll quote Ronald Reagan. And, you know, if you ask these people, what do you, you know, what it is they like about Reagan, what what it is they liked, they wouldn't be able to tell you. But I'm I'm paraphrasing from Reagan, and and I think I can do that because I do know about Reagan. <laughs> uh, I grew up with him as president, right? Uh, I'm in my early fifties, so I you know I grew up, and he he was uh, a president um, in my time. He, and again, I'm paraphrasing. What is it? Freedom is. You know, it's it's only a generation away from extinction. And a riff on that is, I mean, you could you could say freedom, or you can just kind of say in a more nebulous way, all that makes a community unique and all that makes it strong and all that makes it resilient and all that protects it from societal ills is only a generation away from extinction. But we only apply that, this, this idea, and Reagan was very, he was, he was right but we only apply that to nation to a nation to our nation the, the United States of America that is we don't apply it to our communities why is that you know if people want boston to remain boston they got to fight for it it's really that simple i think there was a time when i would say to people oh don't leave please don't leave just hang in there You know, I'm trying to do something. There are other people, uh, they're trying to do something. And and together, we're just, we're hoping to make some kind of positive impact. We're going to try to reverse, reverse the tide. 
Now I don't bother saying that, and I'm going to tell you why. If someone wants to leave, go. I feel like I'm wedded to Boston. I'm going to stay and fight. Now, of course, there are people, whether it's an individual or family, and for the families, I I do, I, I particularly feel for the families, but I just want to make it sure, uh, make it clear rather that it's not to say I don't feel for the individuals who choose to settle elsewhere. But I think with families, you have a lot more considerations, right? Um, I'm going to say that I get it. I, I think that there is parts of the population, and it's not a matter of not wanting to fight, but it's 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 just not feasible. It's not feasible. And, you know, I know some of these people, they love Boston, but it's, I mean, if you have children, <laughs> you know, not everyone can afford to put children in a private school. I mean, not everyone has that financial bandwidth. What do you want families to do? I mean, you actually have families from all different social classes that determine where they're going to live based on, you know, if, if, if the families have children, you know, where their children can get the best education. So I can't fault families for leaving, but I hope they won't, but I I can't fault the ones that do when they have those considerations in mind. And then, of course, the cost of living is is absolutely exorbitant. So it's, (laughs) what are are people supposed to do? Um, But I'm, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm very stubborn. And I I think that's, uh, in this instance, I think that's a very good thing. Not so much in other uh, contexts, but here it's 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 a very good thing. Um, but I'm going to stay and fight because I don't understand why we can't do more for our for our, our, our children and also for adults too. Because education doesn't stop uh, at the age of uh, seventeen. We need to also worry about the quality of the schools that are in and around Boston. And I would say around Boston, too, because people come from all over the world to go to the schools that are just outside Boston. And a lot of times they live right here in Boston or they later decide to put down roots in Boston. So I think we need to uh, concern ourselves with higher education. Um, I think we also need to concern ourselves with adult education. Uh, whether it is for more white-collar work or more blue-collar work. We have to, again, education is the currency of this city, so we always have to make sure that people are learning, that they have the opportunity to learn, and that whatever resources that are needed to keep people's body of knowledge or, or our skill set fresh, that it's here, right? That's, that's what, I mean, that's what we need to do. That what's, that's what needs to be done. But I started to talk about housing too. And it's just, it's very difficult to live. If you want to live, if you don't want to worry about not being able to afford rent, 
and you want to live on your own, I would say that you need to be making, I'm going to say about 80000 a year, eighty to 85000 a year. Maybe you can get away with making a little less, but I think if you want to live alone in Boston and you want a, a choice of where you can live, you need to be making, I would say, to be really comfortable and not have to worry about being one car breakdown, a one a medical, a one medical emergency away from eviction, uh, being in the streets. I think you need to be making eighty thousand. Like I said, you can maybe get away with seventy five thousand, but eighty thousand, mm, that's nice. That's a nice round number. And that's that's crazy because a lot of jobs are not paying that. And a lot of people are working two and three jobs. And this is nothing new, by the way. And they're not even making half of that. It's scary. So it's you have all these problems. And then let's talk about the drug situation. I cannot stand the people who are clogging up the marketplace of ideas with their nonsense, with their ego-driven drivel. When I went down to Methadone Mile in 2020, and I stood up and I talked about the whole ecosystem, all of a sudden, you had all these different collaboratives that, you know, uh, sprung up, one in particular, <clears throat> and you had all these people like running down to the mile. And, you know, I worked with different people for a bit, but after a while, it was like, well, you know what? Y'all are bringing the noise. Y'all are getting the attention. Y'all know how to make the cameras swing your way. But you don't know how to bring the insight. And you don't know how to drop the plans. And you don't know how to articulate the entirety of the issue. And so what we have today is we have people, a lot of the same people, who, of course, are given all the credit for bringing attention to Methanol Mile. And it's like, well, hold up a minute. Hold, <laughs> hold up. There are people, and I think they're tremendously ineffective. I don't think that they know very much about Methanol Mile. They know certain bits and pieces, and that's not enough to be front and center in, in speaking on this issue. It's just simply not. If you want to be front and center, you need to be able to talk at length about the many layers of this humanitarian crisis, because it is. It's public health crisis, it's humanitarian crisis, a multidimensional crisis, yeah. So what you have instead, or you have people who talk about what they know, and then they just keep on finding new ways to introduce what they know into the discussion, and then they pump up the volume so that people think, well, that's got to be the crux of the issue. No, it's not. But what I started to say, and I do want to make sure I get this out, 
that even those people, they should be credited with putting a spotlight on certain aspects of the mile. But you can't talk about methadone mile and only talk about the needles. You simply can't. And, you know, I went down there by myself, which mm, that's not maybe the safest thing to do, right? Um, You know, when I talked about not just the addicts, you can't talk just about the addicts. You really can't. And I'm tired of people doing that. And that doesn't mean I don't stand shoulder to shoulder with the recovery community. Of course I do. But how can you talk about an area that is flooded with addicts, but you neglect to talk about the impact of their presence on the community? Think about that. And so I talk about the residents. And so, you know, some of these people who talk about the needles, they'll talk about the residents too, but not in any extensive detail. And you've got to, again, especially if you want to be front and center, if you want to be looked at as an authority, and you've got all these people who want to do that. Because why? Well, because when you talk about the mile, you get attention. And people want attention. They don't want to do anything to earn that attention. They just want that attention. So, yeah, let's talk about the needles. I appreciate if something has been done to, to, to combat the, the number of needles on the ground. Well, actually, there hasn't been anything really done. Um, and I have to say that. So why don't I rephrase that? I appreciate any spotlight that has been put on this grave issue. But it, this is not what methadone mile is. It's not about the proliferation of needles. It's a city within a city. It's a whole ecosystem. And so when I talked about businesses, I actually had someone, and it was funny because I think she was right-leaning, and it's so sad, and I'm going to, I have to get this out here. You have some Republicans, certainly not all, but they tend to be certain operatives. And they don't want to see a fellow Republican get attention for doing something good, for knowing what's going on, for being not only in in the community, but implicated in the community. They don't want to see this because... They have their script, and they have this little infrastructure within which they dwell. And so if you're a Republican, you can only talk about certain things from a certain point of view. And this kind of mentality has been really—it's grown— Right, like like a like a cancer. It's grown, um, especially with the presence of Jim Lyons as a leader. Now he's long been because he was an elected official. He was a state rep for a number of years. 
uh, state representative on Beacon Hill. Um, he resides in Andover, so he was representing, you know, area, the area, areas out around there. Um, you know, he's been considered a leader for a while because he was an elected official. But when he became the chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, he then became like the leader, one of the main leaders. And he doesn't want to give that up. And yeah, it's all about power with some, with the, not some of these people, these people. Um, that's, and that's why nothing gets done, because it's just about power. It's, it's just, it's about status, it's about power, it's about attention, it's about money. And that's why nothing gets done. That's a whole nother story, right? But here he is, and he, you know, he very much ascribes to that point of view. And so I had people attacking me. I had people dissing me, okay, because I was talking about businesses. What in the blazes do you think is going to happen to a business that is in such an environment that is located on the mile? The headaches those people have to deal with. And you don't think that their ability to stay open is not impacted. Look, they have to worry about finding people who would who would be willing to work there. And then they got to worry some of the businesses, uh, you know, you have goodwill. It's a nonprofit, but, you know, nonprofits at the end of the day, they, they function like businesses. They really do. You have all kinds of junkies, addicts who go in there and they steal. They steal. And what do you think that does to the surplus of goodwill? What do you think that, how do you, I mean, of course that's going to impact their ability to some extent, at least to some extent, to, to be able to fund the programs that they do. And I'm sure some people at home are like, wait a minute, did she really say junkies? Yes, I really did. I'm not going to have people police my languages. Uh, my language, rather. Uh, I stand with the recovery community. It's nothing new. Uh, while I myself have never used drugs, I've never even smoked marijuana. And, and and let me just say, that doesn't make me better or worse. I just decided as a kid, believe it or not, as a teenager, I said to myself, well, I don't know how I would react if I consumed these illicit substances. And I prefer to be clear-headed. I want to be in control of the situations in which I find myself, and I can best do that if, again, I'm clear-headed. So I don't want my judgment to be impaired. And I always thought to myself, you know, I heard a lot of stories about how people, I mean, obviously people come there are many roads to addiction, right? Um, you know, there's some people who who can become addicted because they were overprescribed painkillers, right? So th- there are many ways people can can get to a, a, a addiction. Um, you know, you have some people peer pressure, right? But for me, it was always I 
I, I just, I want to be in control of what I do and what I say wherever I go. And I just don't think I can do that if I were to not even abuse, because we're talking about some really, there's some really bad things out there, right? I mean, crack, heroin, meth. I mean, those those are some seriously bad drugs. I mean, those drugs, that trio, that's like, that trio constitutes the devil itself. Um, I, you know, it's, I just said, no, thanks. Hard, hard pass. All right. But it's not about me considering myself better than someone who has struggled with addiction, who has been an active addict. Um, Not at all. So let me get that out there. It's not about anyone being better or worse. Um, It's just the decision I made. And and in this instance, regarding this, it, it, it's been a smart one. It's been a very smart one, right? Um, but that hasn't stopped me from standing shoulder to shoulder with the recovery community. That hasn't stopped me um, from having compassion, from having empathy. And there's so much I, that I want to do so that people can recover and that they can enjoy sobriety, real sobriety, and that they can be productive members of their respective communities. That's something that's very important to me. But I'm not going to have my language policed. And I think that when you use a word like junkie, it's less, for me, it's less a statement about the person. In fact, it's 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 about what the person is using. It's it's about what the person is putting inside his or her body, right? Because it is junk. It's toss, toxic, horrible, poisonous junk. And I feel like if we whitewash the language as to what the person is using and doing. I, I think we're making excuses. I think we're enabling, right? So I understand. I've taken the time. I've sat down with people, and I completely understand. And I agree that we need to continue to remove any stigma that exists, um, or the stigmas that exist around addiction and and what people think of Others are what people think of those that abuse drugs, right? Because, again, you have some wonderful, incredible people, and they have fallen prey to addiction. So becoming an addict doesn't mean that you don't deserve compassion. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve grace. It doesn't mean that you, you don't deserve mercy, and so we need to remove the shame that is around addiction. At the same time, I think that we shouldn't go as far as to say that, well, we're going to whitewash addiction. We're going to make it 
into less of a toxic thing than it, than it actually is. Addiction is a, a, a horrendous thing. It's a horrendous thing, and we shouldn't whitewash that. What I'm saying is that when you're talking about the person, the person doesn't suddenly— if, the, if, you, if you're talking about a good, decent person, the person doesn't— you have to choose your words carefully because drugs just destroy people, but I, I, why don't I, I think the best way to phrase it is I would never treat an addict as if he or she were undeserving of mercy, and that's the way to put it. But the point is, is I'm not going to have my language policed. I'm not. So we have all these people talking about methadone mile. And they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, look, methadone mile, you know, second methadone mile. It's in Dudley. Oh, you know, Nubian Square, I still call it Dudley. And it's like, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been? Like a cancer, methadone mile, it, it has spread. Dudley Square, Nubian Square has long been a part of methadone mile. If you don't know that, you need to have a seat. Why are you talking about methadone mile? Come on, man. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't understand. So it's it's this it's this idea, and I've, I've said this on a previous show, it's like I've taken different personalities to task without actually, you know, saying this person whose name is. But it's this idea, this mentality that I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that doesn't really matter because I want attention. And I'm going to get attention however I can. So I'm going to use big words. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to take lots of pictures. I'm going to use incendiary language. I'm just, just yeah, make a lot of noise. And, and you know what? None of that does anything to, to change the situation. Um, so it certainly hasn't done anything to change methadone miles. Stay tuned because I have some ideas. And I'm just, you know, moving forward. I, I've talked to people. I'm just going to work with certain people, you know, I mean, because I think that this is an area where you do need to work with other people in most areas, actually, but certainly here. Um, but I only want to work with people who who know what they're talking about. Not the people who get the most attention, but the people who know what they're talking about. People who have plans and people who can articulate uh, what's going on. I'm just, I'm tired. I'm done. And so here I have spent the almost the entirety of the show because we, we don't have much time left. I uh, had no time for break today. Oop. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we've talked about all these different issues. And what is this leading up to? Well, we have elections this year for the city council. And I want people to vote. It's the only thing I can urge you to do, vote. But it's, it's important to be well-informed. So we won't find out all of the candidates. Well, 
I don't know when exactly we'll find out. Um, I just read somewhere that the Boston, the elections department has, the election department has until I believe July 7th. Um, I hope they don't take quite that long um, because I want to know who's on the ballot. (laughs) Uh, for city council at large, uh, we have some serious problems. Um, but then there's some district councilors who need, uh, they need a good run for their money too. But we have, we have um, some serious problems with the at-large councilors and they need to go. They need to go. There's no other way that I can articulate that because the council is the first port of call. Right. And I always say, and and for those of you who've listened to me for a while, you must be like, well, dang, Rachel, you kind of like a broken record. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess I kind of am on this anyway. (laughs) You know, even though the mayor is very strong in in the city of Boston, that's just the way that the position is built. The city council is not without pull. It's not without juice. Uh, and it can wield its might. And so that's why we need people. They don't have to, members don't have to always row in the same direction. In fact, I think they can get more done if they don't, because the idea is that you have this push and pull of ideas, which which is is, I think, necessary to really kind of produce the best and most innovative ideas, Right. But what we have right now is a council where people really don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the the areas that they have been hired to represent. And, you know, you even have some city councilors who, who, who don't even know how to practice basic decorum. So I'm done. I've had it. And people need to go. And, you know, I'll be talking more about this uh, in, in the months ahead. Um, I will tell people, because I did say in the last show that I wanted to talk about this. Um, so it, it will it will definitely be like an ongoing topic for sure, for sure. But it looks like there are going to be, or there looks like rather that there were 13 people who pulled papers to run for um, an at-large seat on the Boston City Council. And so for people who are less familiar uh, with uh, the the makeup, the composition uh, of the Boston City Council, there are four at-large positions, and then there are uh, nine district seats. Um, but the district seats and, and the at-large seats, I mean, their votes weigh the same, but it's just in terms of representation, right? So the at-large uh, councilors represent the entirety of the city. And again, the district councilors represent pieces of the city. But yeah, I just, I'm tired of councilors who who are just, they're learning. They're getting paid to learn the city. They're getting paid to learn the communities that they had the unmitigated gall to stand up and say, hey, I know you. And in fact, they don't. Okay, they're getting paid a a little over $100,000 a year. So you know what I call that? I call that an internship. But when when you think about it, again, the city council is the first port of call. If you have issues on a municipal level, 
people need to know what they're doing. And, and you know what? If you go to other municipalities, which I have, which I do on a regular basis, if you go, for example, to Revere, they don't, those, the city councilors in Revere, they do not work part, um, full time. So it's part time. And let me tell you something you go there, my goodness gracious, the city councilors in Revere are on point. They are on point. They know the city, they know the issues. Then you come here to Boston. You go to a meeting, and at this point, a spectator is lucky if he or she can witness, can watch a meeting that unfolds civilly without issue. It's 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 too much. It's it's enough. We need new people. Um, there are five people that we know for sure that have made the ballot um, for the city council. So we have the four incumbents. They're all running for re-election. So Michael Flaherty, Erin uh, Murphy, Julia Mejia, and Rootsy Lujan. So those four are the at-large counselors. And then you have Catherine Vitale, who is one of the anti-vaxxers. I'll have much more to say about Catherine. Um, she she made it, so good for her. Um, and I say good for her in so far as, you know, your first time, well, so second time, well, I, I don't know really what she was doing like a couple years back. Uh, she was, or last year, was it? Or year, I don't know, like all the years have, bleed, have bled into one another. But she like, had sort of kind of a campaign for Congress for the 7th Congressional seat. I I don't know what really happened to that. I think it was aborted. But I would say to anyone the first time out of the gate, congratulations if you make the ballot. But we're going to talk about Catherine because she has some pretty reprehensible views. But the point is, is that we have five people, uh, the incumbents plus Catherine, who have made the ballot. Uh, I definitely think that we're going to have at least two or three other people, um, and hopefully we'll find out sooner rather than later. But that is about all we have time for. Um, It always goes by so fast, and sometimes we have more to talk about, so no breaks for us. Uh, And then other times we we can take more of a breather. Um, But as always, uh, thank you so much for hanging out. And I look forward to hanging out with you next week. And next week, as I I said, we're going to continue to talk about the city council elections here in Boston. And hopefully uh, we'll have more information then. Okay. Bye-bye for now. The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.